It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey everyone, welcome to Talent Talk. I'm so excited that we are having this. Uh, this is sort of a special show, and I'm going to talk to you why about why that is in just a second. But in case this is the first time that you are finding out about Talent Talk, we basically exist to talk about talent, to talk to really talented people. They tend to be one and the same. And love to have these inspiring conversations where we can find out what are they thinking, what are they doing, what are they reading, what do they care about right now that we might learn from, grow from, and, and take back to our businesses. And the reason this, this show today is special is we always are on live uh, through uh, the UCI uh, Innovation Lab, through Paul Roberts and the OC Talk Radio uh, radio station. We also are on uh, iTunes and iHeartRadio and Stitcher and Spotify and all these places where you find your podcast. We're on YouTube, which if you want to watch the video. But now, as of today, we are doing LinkedIn Live as well. So we're bringing the show to another level of live. So we're live on the radio and we are live on LinkedIn today. Hopefully it's going well. I don't know. We'll find out afterwards. Fingers crossed. Um, I just pressed the button and then I hope for the best. So, um, you know, this show is really about capturing stories. So a lot of those stories went into my first book called The Power of Company Culture. We really took what we found that people were consistently talking about that made great cultures and then backed it up with some science and released it as a book. And then my uh, for my second book, my co-author and I, Kim Shepard, wrote Remote Work, which there were so many stories that came out of the pandemic and people were working remotely. We've continued to see that story go on and on with remote work staying, hybrid work and all this. So Either of those books are available wherever you find books online. Love to have you check those out and let me know what you think. Um, we are live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with at least one, usually two, fantastic guests that can teach us something. And uh, while we're doing all of that, my social media uh, coordinator, Angela, is feverishly on Twitter, putting all the best quotes and links and things. Um, we're going to try to see if we can get some of that on the LinkedIn Live as well. We'll see. She's got a lot to do all in one time. Um, but so if you're interested in following along on Twitter or continuing the conversation, we are there or as well in the LinkedIn, uh, post. All right. Now that I've teased you enough, who are my guests today? You maybe see, if you're watching the live video, you may be seeing one of them right now, but my guest today will be Jen Graham. She's a founder and CEO of inclusive with two V's, I think. And then, uh, Jason Lauritsen, author, speaker, management trainer, and innovator, but let's go ahead and get started. Let's bring in Jen Graham. She's, like I said, the founder and CEO at Inclusive, and which is an engagement platform that brings uh, diverse voices together for conversations that matter. As recently recognized as, well, she was recently recognized as a world-changing woman 
by Conscious Company Magazine, uh, Media, and Small Business Person of the Year, Rising Star by the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Jen's work has received recognition from President Obama, the New York Times, Forbes, the White House, and more. Um, holy wow, holy, that's just that's a lot. So, Jen, welcome to the show. Why don't you t- introduce? If I haven't, if I've forgotten <laughs> something, clearly your resume is just filled with things. So maybe I've forgotten something. Oh, How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. super exciting to meet you. All the work that you've been doing in the space of employee engagement and company culture is just really admirable. So thank you. Well, thank you. And so what what should we know about you today? What are you working on today? What's sort of the whatever I maybe left out or maybe there's some some small bits in there that might be of interest for our audience to kind of know you a little better before we dive in here? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say I'm first and foremost, a community organizer and learned the hard way as to what really motivates people to change and create real change. And as a former TEDx Atlanta organizer, I was doing it wrong in a way where we were constantly pulling people together for big summits and conferences and and really doing a lot of talking and not a lot of listening and allowing people to participate. So I feel um, my my whole mission has become how do we make ideas more ubiquitous and more democratic? And how do we engage more people in actually solving the problems of the world? Whether that's creating a more inclusive culture in your workplace or creating a more livable habitat as we encounter the change that we're seeing around the world with yeah. so much change happening with climate. Well, what you, you kind of mentioned there was something I really noticed a lot more of, and I think it was a good thing, that there was so much happening in 2020 along with us having to kind of slow down and actually pay attention to everything that was going around. We didn't have the, I guess, maybe the needless commute and stupid meetings. Like Things kind of calmed down for people and then personally, but then like publicly, like the world was on fire, right? Um, politics and um, uh, diversity issues and, and police uh, brutality. I mean, there was so many things to talk about. Right. That I did notice that there was a lot more opportunities where people did show up and they shut up. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of them showing up and let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you what I know. Right. Um, It was a lot more of let's just show up and I want to shut up and I want to learn and I want to hear what everyone else has to think on this because maybe I maybe I've been right. Maybe I've been off. So do you think this is going to continue? Will this be a trend? You think we're going to maybe dive down and be a little bit better listeners going forward? I sure hope so. I I know that, I mean, we are human beings first and foremost. And before we are uh, an employee, we are a father, we're a mother, we're a daughter, and we have all of the weight of the world of our family members going through the same things that we are at the moment. And it's really hard to shut that off when you enter the workspace. And being remote too, for so many, like you said, um, has changed the way that we think about work-life balance and also what people have when wanting to kind of, it's, it's well, I'll remember this meme that I saw back when the COVID pandemic first started, which was, it sounded like, um, it was a picture of mother earth. And it says, it feels like mother earth has sent us all to our rooms to think about what we've done, <laughs> which was so true resonating because we're all socially isolated and, and to really have that chance to ponder what is our real role? How can we, uh, what do we want to do here on this on this life? We know it's short lived, and there's so much on fire, literally, in the moment. Um, and how can we leverage our own, our own influence, our circles of influence for change? 
And I think most people look at their peers and their workspace and their environment, um, but they struggle. They don't know how to bring others along with them. They care about these issues. They want to feel like they belong. They want to feel connected to their peers, but there's no real structure in place to allow that connection to happen organically. And, um, you, you know, there's, a, there's only so many Zoom rooms that you can be in and meeting times, but how can we actually design a brave space where people know that they're going to be able to show up as their whole selves to be able to engage and, and tell their own lived experience and their own struggles and ask questions that they might think are dumb or like and just come from a place of, hey, I've never really understood this before. Here's what I think. Can you and, and just lean into that curiosity? So I, for one, really hope that we learn from 2020 as like, hey, <laughs> we have just woken up as a whole country and as a as a globe we we were finally kind of becoming aware of what we don't know and i think that's inspiring people to lean into their curiosity to get to know others to ask questions and more importantly listen to other perspectives and so all of this i'm assuming kind of was a part of what caused you to start inclusive maybe you can talk about what inclusive is and why you started it and Maybe what did you notice in the workplace culture that really needed to be changed? I think the, you know your your company's trying to trying to help with. Yeah, uh, it's oh gosh, I mean Civic Dinners, which was inclusive. We just went through a rebrand, so um, inclusive, formerly known as Civic Dinners, truly started as a almost an anecdote to the social media world that we were living in, where it's really hard to have a real conversation with people who may not agree with you on certain issues or concepts or ideas. And instead of debating or feeling like you have to come armored with facts and stats and and so forth, we really wanted to build a space that allowed a small group of people, six to eight people to come together to have a structured dialogue with one question at a time. So very simple ground rules, almost like a uh, engagement um, rules and guidelines um, and, and then encouraging them to share from their own lived experience to be able to really deeply connect not only to the issue and topic, but to others there in the room. And sometimes people we have found, I mean, we, we've been so lucky over the COVID. We, we have, obviously we had to pivot when COVID hit, we were hundred percent in person and we were mostly over dinners and, and food because the power of food and bringing people together and that magic. And so thankfully we were able to pivot and, and bring people together virtually. And we had clients and partners like Facebook and Coca-Cola that were able to take us global. Um, and so we've been able so far to connect and bring people together from over hundred, over almost 82 countries. And then we've had almost uh, over 2000 conversations happening around the world on that end, but it all boiled down to this, to feelings of, connection and being able to meet people from different backgrounds and different perspectives and to really lean in and learn from others in this brave space. And I really want people to be, to pick up on or to remember kind of what you said, but you didn't say it ex- explicitly. And you, you kind of mentioned that power of, of a dinner. And really there's a lot of science around the so cognitive biases and things that happen when we're hungry. Now the joke is if you go watch a Snickers commercial, Right. They'll say, you know, you kind of show someone's hungry and they get angry and like they're they're temperamental and they don't want to listen. Right. And there is actual science around. We really can see what people are fed. If they're not hungry, they can be open. 
to new ideas. They can, they will listen more. They will share more. They will, there's just something weird that, and this is why like, you know, you, you close deals at a business lunch. This is why you close deal. You know, all of these things happen. And it's not that you were so smart and so good at closing the deal. It's that the other person wasn't hungry. Right. And there's a lot to do with it. Um, and the other thing to remember, so if you, can, you can recreate this even if you're remote, right? You can have everybody grab their bagel and a coffee and have a little meeting, right? So you're there eating and then you're, hey, now here's this really difficult thing we need to talk about. And you're going to get a much better um, outcome out of that than if they all show up at 1115 right before lunch and they're starving and they're not listening to you, right? Um, this is another reason why I love remote work because... There's the same thing with temperature. So if someone's too cold or too hot, they have the same problem, right, as being hangry. Um, but when we're remote, we can control our own thermostats. We don't have to fight over it, right? We all can be the perfect temperature we want to be uh, for the most part. So I, I really kind of love what you, you, you've been able to start to do um, and, and, and in bringing that in. And, and that pivot is really fascinating to me. You had to kind of go from being in dinners to suddenly, suddenly not, right? Were there other things that you sort of learned in that process as well? Oh my gosh. Yes. I'd say we built out, uh, right before the pandemic, we had just launched our new inclusive series, which had about 24 different topics spanning the entire spectrum of diversity and inclusion from mental health to, uh, to just women in leadership and voice of women, but also racial equity we built out. Uh, so now we have, we, when we launched it, we realized too, people needed a sense of wellness in the remote workspace. And what does community look like when we're working remote and how do we build that? So we built a whole COVID series of conversations to help people connect. We created our first ever like happy hour that was designed to maybe make lighten, lighten the mood a little bit and allow people to connect on topics. We had an incredible conversation on grief and gratitude that allowed people to really tap into the to the grief that they were experiencing, whether it was actual lost loved ones or just lost experiences that we didn't get to have when we were when we had just gone remote. Um, and those those themes that started well, that we, we realized the themes around um, just mental health were really in in need. Those are the ones that people were craving the most because they're it's almost been a taboo to talk about mental health, especially in the workplace and being able to, you know, you're now able to actually peer into other people's homes and get a glimpse of what their day in life is like that you didn't have before. That creates that sense of connection and vulnerability that we that we learned through the virtual. Another thing, too, with the going and having to pivot virtually, we, we were able to actually connect with moms and working moms that were really hard to get to a dinner table in a restaurant because of mm -hmm. childcare, traffic and concerns there. And then we were able to bring people together from around the world at the same conversation and leveraging the tools like breakout rooms to be able to still have the intimacy that makes a conversation like an inclusive conversation. So magical is that six to eight people and that structured dialogue, we were still able to, to create that space virtually. And we will continue doing that online as we hopefully go back in person. We were about to launch it and then Delta variant right. took that off track, but we do hope to go back in person and, and be able to reconnect with people face to face. Yeah. It'd be good if you guys could have some kind of a mix because you're experiencing what we did, which was with remote work. And we, we started back in 2009 and we realized very quickly there was these groups of people who couldn't get jobs or were dying to get jobs that they needed to be part-time and needed to be flexible. This tended to be, you know, stay-at-home parents, single parents, 
maybe uh, people who were caring for a sick spouse or a sick parent or grandparent, right? They needed the hours to be somewhat flexible, and the need, and and these were not people you were typically going to get if you just right. said full time position must work from nine to five, right? Must okay. must drive two hours to my crappy office and sit in the cubicle farm, um, you know, and the, and you were gonna, and so that is that that's a level of diversity that we miss out on. Yeah. Right. By by sure. limiting who can even be considered to actually work in your office. Yeah. Um, the in- inclusion part is, OK, now they're there. Right. Now that you've got them in the door, how do you make sure that they really become a part of the culture? So maybe w- what are your suggestions for leaders on why it's important and what they can be doing to really invest into the inclusive inclusivity part of the culture? Yes, I'd say. There's that you know, culture eat strategy for lunch. And that, that, I love that quote because it's so true. And even our company itself has been going through the same scenarios that are happening all around the world when we come to it. Like, how are we, how are we examining our own biases in the workplace? And how are we constantly looking at it? It starts with self-awareness as a, as a leader and as a company. And we've been doing, been doing that work as a leadership team and constantly giving ourselves the tools because we realized first we didn't have the skills or tools to be able to step in or acknowledge if something someone said wasn't the appropriate way to say it, how to do that to in, in a way that um, protects someone's dignity. And if they just didn't know, like, how do we call people in? And uh, all of these tools that we're learning that are part in the, of the basic foundations of inclusion. Um, so we're learning this from some of the from some of the greatest DEI leaders that we've actually had the privilege of working with. So we've we're kind of in this space as well as we're we're growing on our own journey. Another speaking of journey, that's also what we've really honed in on. We realized that. Diversity, inclusion, and inclusivity is not just a check the box kind of thing. Um, If it ever feels like that, where you've like, yep, I've done the training, I have arrived, I am woke, that's when you've stopped learning and it'll come and bite you in the butt because it's just you're constantly having to be open and aware of all of the, you know, your onboarding practices and, and things that might have gotten overlooked um, could actually be causing um, some serious harm and unbeknownst to you. So I think constantly being aware and encouraging dialogue. So allowing people to have a, have a safe way to be able to bubble up ideas and communicate across the board. That's why with inclusive conversations, our model is like equal time to share with one voice at a time and really a no judgment brave space. It's about allowing people to practice the art of really sharing what they really feel and think and being then willing to be able to do that in the boardroom when it's, you know, when big decisions are being made. So we have to give people the skills and the tools to be able to practice that brave kind of speaking up, sharing things that they might not have ever said out loud before in front of anybody, but they would, but they feel confident in that those kind of small wins when people, there's also this element of psychological safety that we've just kind of stumbled into. We didn't know what we were doing this, but part of the magic of what makes an inclusive conversation so great is that you know that you're not going to be interrupted. And something about knowing that you're not going to be interrupted Mm. is what creates that psychological safety to say what you want to say without knowing, without feeling like someone's going to be ready to respond or debate you. It's about speaking your truth. And that is so incredibly powerful. And obviously you can do that on social media, but not in the same presence of others to be there just to receive 
and to hear you and feel you and, and in a way of like resonate with you. It's just, it's transformative and we need more. Yeah. Like let, let me get it all the way out before you decide whether or not you think it's valid or whether or not you think it's, you can learn something from this. Yeah. Um, because this is, this is something we've talked about a lot on the show where often people are pretty terrible at delivering the real meaning. In fact, I, I would say if I'm talking, it's actually your job to make sure you understand the meaning of what I've said. It is not actually my job as the talker because you're using your own filter of biases and, and things that you've learned or whatever, right? So you need to like listen all the way and then say, okay, I think what I heard you say was one, two, three. And then I can be like, well, no, I really was saying five, six, seven. And so we have to like actually kind of negotiate that. What am I really trying to say as the one speaking um, before we even then bother to decide, are we going to discuss this? Are we going to debate this? Are we going to learn from this? Whatever it may be. I, I think people tend to be pretty open to wanting to do some of this stuff, but they're pretty ignorant as to how to do it. So what are some of the things you think they need to be doing? Is this structured conversations? Are there mm -hmm. other ways that they need to, 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 to start to tackle this? Yeah, you nailed it. I think people are craving this kind of engagement, but they, especially HR leaders, those that we talk to daily from DE&I leaders, this is the work that they really want to do, but they don't know what how to get started or even know what to say. And they're sometimes fearful of like, Ooh, if we open up a can of worms or what happens, what ha like worst case scenario down the line thinking. So what we have done, um, we have started to build like the, the basics of what facilitation training and uh, we bake that into our models. So part of our platform has, has, has a curriculum for hosting. And so it's just like, here's exactly what you need to do when you want to host a courageous conversation, especially on conversations that might be heated. Like, for example, we are bringing together police officers and community members in Atlanta, Georgia, for conversations about community policing. We're going to have Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter people and also the police from Atlanta coming together for a conversation about like, and understanding each other's perspectives and the and the feelings. So we're going to have trained facilitators there and present that have gone through the National Center for Civil Human Rights, like um, racial equity training and trained on like what to say, when to interrupt. But also we've crafted the conversation to be all about starting with personal stories. And so it's, hard, it's impossible to argue with someone's own lived experience. And so allowing people to really just share their side and perspective while the other side listens, it's magical. And we're, um, we're actually going to, because we're going to be doing it online through Zoom, we're going to be able to engage inmates from the Fulton County um, Sheriff's Department and the, the jail there. So we're going to be able to pull in perspectives that have gone through the entire process and cycle of this. Um, and, and but what we find is like having that structured conversation and we intentionally design them in a way that takes them on a journey. So the first question, which we have three big questions that we ask, the first one's all about you know, that background, that personal story that relates to the topic and to that personal lived experience. The second one is really about kind of understanding the larger societal factors that have contributed to the inequities, perhaps in that on the issue or the topic. And these, it, what I like to, when, when we design these, we really try to pull out the tension because that's what makes every story really memorable. And there's got to be 
it's some kind of tension that we like to call out in the prompt before we ask the question. And then the third one is about resolution. How can we participate in bringing this to some kind of peace? Now that we've, we've connected personally to this, we understand and empathize with others here. We've heard other stories. We understand the tensions and the complexity of these issues because nothing is in isolation anymore. Everything's intertwined. And then the last piece is like, what role can you play? What kind of personal responsibility do you have in moving this forward? And what role do you have or what influence do you have in your circles of leadership, whether it's at your workplace or in your church or your your community or your, your neighborhood? Um, everybody has a, a sphere of influence that they can take forward, whether it's hosting their own conversation or right. getting to learning more about the topic. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing this work. There has been Never has there been so much social issues and so much uh, conversation around what's happening outside of work, inside of work. Uh, And so we need more and more help uh, to do that and to do it effectively and to help us get to, you know, continue to evolve and be in better places. We're definitely going to need to have you come back at some point because we did not get to everything. There's so much more to talk about uh, that's just fascinating about what you're doing and your background. But uh, I need to ask you the most important question, which is how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more about Inclusive with two Vs uh, if they're uh, interested in learning more? Thank you, Chris. Um, If you're interested at all, please uh, find me on LinkedIn uh, at Jen Graham uh, at Inclusive, or you can email Jen, J-E-N-N at Inclusive with two Vs and no E uh, dot co. So Inclusive dot co, because we're all about bringing more peace and harmony to the world. So I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, Jen, thank you again so much for being on the show. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll bring in my second guest, uh, Jason uh, Lordsell. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit peopleg2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or peopleg2.com. Welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, Jen Graham. Well, you can find it now on LinkedIn. We are live, LinkedIn Live right now, and that'll be there posted. We'll have it on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, YouTube. We'll have it everywhere. So don't worry, you'll be able to catch us. Just wherever you find us, make sure you subscribe so that you always get alerted to the next show when it's available. Um, so my next guest is Jason Lauritsen, speaker, management trainer, employee engagement expert, uh, and also a novice blues harmonica player, uh, I think, which I thought was a an interesting uh, addition to your bio. Uh, there we go. And of course, he's also the author of Unlocking High Performance. Uh, don't forget, you can also go to talenttalkradio.com to subscribe. But let's go ahead and bring Jason in the show. Welcome, sir. Hey, Chris. How are you? Doing awesome. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, what should we know about you that's important? 
Wow, that's a that's a broad place to start. Um, yes, I, I, you know what? You, I am I am on a professional level. Well, let's start personal first. I am uh, married, three kids. I live uh, on uh, what we call the compound, a little acreage outside of Omaha, Nebraska. Um, kind of living the dream. I um, my friends and the people that know me well think it's funny because I the the work I do. I've kind of dedicated myself to the work of like unsucking work. Um, I, you know, I believe that work can work for human beings. Like it can be a, a nourishing, uplifting thing. And yet, and th- this is what I've dedicated my entire career to. And yet I really, really uh, hate being an employee and I'm a terrible employee myself. And so there's sort of a, a conflict in that. But uh, uh, my business is, my business, I I like to think of myself as um, being on a quest to help leaders and managers largely to sort of open their mind to thinking different about their role and about work in a way that allows them to show up for the people that count on them so they can create a better experience of work so that people can unleash their potential and be their best. Well, you're certainly speaking my language because I'm with you and I would be a terrible employee, but that's mostly because there's a lot of leaders and a lot of people that are just doing it so terribly. And it's so hard to sit there and watch everyone be in misery through a meeting that was an hour that should have only taken 15 minutes, right? Or a meeting that was supposed to be 15 minutes and now has gone two hours because some somebody has hijacked it and just taken over this meeting and turned it into something else that no one else was prepared to do, right? There's these, there's these things. And I, I think maybe you could talk about this and I've had this experience where I sort of go to, you know, someone asked me to come in and help them with their company or their meetings or engagement or whatever. And I'm like, do you know it doesn't have to suck? And they're like, no, it will always suck. No, it actually can be awesome. And your people will actually enjoy working here. Do you know this? And they're like, no, there's no way. Can you just make it like 5% better? Like just suck less. And I'm like, no, it can actually be awesome. And then, you know, you end up showing them that kind of stuff. Do you kind of have that same experience that you're trying to, get people to realize how much better it can be? I, yeah, I think so. I think, I, I, yeah, I think you tapped into it. And I, I, I think it's so much starts with understanding what's possible. I mean, so much of what is at least, you know, this has been, you know, the, the, when I was actually, when I was writing my book, the unlocking high performance book, one of the things I did, I have a couple chapters in there that is really, like I'm one of those guys, I like to know how we got here. And so I went and sort of unpacked kind of the history of management to to sort of, and, and it's not comprehensive clearly. And I got started thinking about this because of the great Gary Hamill, but I, I unpacked that and went back. And what I started to realize is like, you know, a lot of what we have today, we sort of just inherited, ended up here. It's sort of something that just, it's it seems like it's always been. And in some cases, it always has been from the very beginning of management um, as a invented thing. And so sometimes you have to, a lot of the work that I know I do is helping people understand and recognize that like there is, it's possible, like just that possibility. And then the other side, and, and this really hit me last, last fall, I launched, a, you know, I did my first kind of cohort of a new uh, management training program I'm doing online. And one of the, one of the guys in my course at the end when we were debriefing, it's like, what was the most valuable thing you got out of this? And he said, he said, you know, he said, probably the thing that, that was most powerful for me is it, it really gave me permission 
to manage my people in a way that I kind of felt in my gut I should be doing it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't think I could because of all the messages I was getting about how I was supposed to manage from the people that trained me or the leaders that I worked around. And so it was like, he felt like he'd gotten permission to kind of be the human and care for people the way he wanted to. And um, so that really was like, for me, that permission is a big barrier is we have to tell people it's okay. We actually don't have to have meetings that suck. We don't have to have conversations that suck. We don't have to do this this way. And that's a little bit tapping into authenticity. It's tapping into autonomy, right? It's one thing for a CEO to say, hey, these are the big things I care about, but ultimately then go each senior leader, go and lead their teams in an authentic way, in an autonomous way that they think works for them using the lens that you've given them, using the things that you've told them are important to the organization and where you want uh, us to focus. But but you're not also like telling them, well, you have to do it this way and you have to have these kinds of meetings and you have to do, 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 you know, remove some of that and let people put their own stamp on it. Um, I've seen fantastic leaders who are ter- just overwhelmingly introverted, right? And yeah. I've seen great leaders that are overwhelmingly extroverted. Um, yep. You know, so But they kind of just do it their own way. One thing I was wanted to kind of maybe get your thoughts on, I've noticed in, in certain organizations, there's a lot of personality to the organization that really matches the CEO or mm-hmm. in really big companies matches that one senior leader who's kind of really overseeing that, that, that division or that department. You know, so the CEO is cracking jokes. There's a lot of humor in the company. If the CEO is saying inappropriate things, there's probably a lot of inappropriate behavior, right? There's a sort of the, a connection to these things. How, how does the average leader deal with that, right? They're sort of in the in-between in that. How, how do they sort of survive in that and, and even thrive in, in, in that kind of a situation? I, well, I think so much of it. I mean, you, you tapped a little bit in, I mean, when you said authenticity, I think so much of, of being an effective leader is getting really clear on who you are, um, what matters to you, what your values are, what kind of leader you're going to be, how you're going to show up for your people. And, you know, I distinctly remember this. I spent, you know, I spent a decade in corporate, corporate leadership, um, in executive roles and management roles. And, what I began to understand in time is that a lot of a lot of what my job was was sort of like creating a, a, a dome of protection over my people to protect them from all the nonsense, from all that stuff. <laughs> and so you right, can right. filter through the good stuff and then block them from the bad stuff or the distracting, unhelpful stuff. And give them something to anchor on that that feels good to them. And um, the 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 best resource I ever read, I, I read a book years ago. Still one of my favorite books to this day is a, a book by um, Stan Slap. Name it, it. The title is "Bury My Heart in Conference Room B." And he basically was making the argument that like reality as a manager is at least it has been traditionally is that most. Most of your jobs for most of your career is likely going to be working for organizations that probably suck, at least on some level in terms of culture and leadership and values. Like, it's just we're not good at this collectively. And so he said, you don't have to be a victim to that. He was basically saying you can interrupt the cycle. And the way you do that is by getting really clear on what your values are. Um, And what, you know, like what your values for your team are going to be. And then those values can be something that that team can anchor to. 
And so just because you're trapped in an organization where, I mean, if you happen to be lucky enough where your CEO is amazing and, you know, the good stuff is raining down and you have great values, then good. That's easy. You can align to that. That's a much easier place to be. But if you're not, you can actually interrupt that cycle and give your team something more, um, you know, give them a purpose and value that they can connect to. And you can really interrupt that cycle to create a great experience for your people. It's hard, hard work as a manager to do that over time. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but it's a way that you can you can work around that. I mean, you can kind of put yourself in some of those bubbles, like you said. I mean, I almost was imagining someone with an umbrella as you were talking, right? So mm-hmm. shielding the people from that, you know, from the rain and letting the good stuff sort of uh, go around it. Um, and, and hopefully that that can happen. It's it's in, so it's interesting to me how much senior leaders can impact in a positive way and in a negative way to really the identity of a department, of a company, of of a division. And I think that's important for anyone who's who's watching or listening to this show. If you are in one of those positions, how much of an impact your behavior, what you say, what you don't say, how much you say, how much you listen, all of that really does permeate throughout the organization at such an impactful level that I think often it's the senior leader's job just to walk around trying to, you know, demonstrate what is it, what's the right way to do something, right? what's the right way to make things happen for everybody else. Um, there's been a, a, a lot of talk over the years, and I was, I know you like to kind of talk about well-being, uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts a, a, around maybe what the conversation should be as it relates to well-being right now, given where we are with the pandemic or Delta or wherever we are in that, um, you know, across the spectrum. What, what should maybe organizations be thinking about from the well-being standpoint? Well, I, so the biggest thing I think that that we should be talking about and understanding right now is that this isn't well-being didn't just show up and become important. Um, I think what what has happened is um, we just have had sort of we've stripped away a bunch of stuff that was in the way and we now can see that well-being was always there and it was always a, it was always having an impact and one of the one of the things that I have been talking about a lot lately, trying to help people think about this a little differently, is that the, the way that we need to step back and think about well-being is that well-being is a performance capacity issue. And the reason I say so, the, the way I the way I describe that is that if we think about like put COVID aside for a minute, like back in our throughout our careers, like when we're sick, we get a cold or we have something going on and we're sick and we try to work. It's like, how well do you do that day when you're sick? Well, I mean, you can get work done, but it probably takes twice as much energy. It takes you longer. You don't do the same quality. Like your ability to perform is reduced when you show up and you're unwell. Like when I was early in my career in particular, I was a work hard, play hard guy. So I'd leave work and I was in sales organizations. So we'd go out and we'd drink and then I'd come to work hungover the next day. When you're hungover, guess what? You are not working at full capacity. I showed up in the morning diminished. My wellness, my well-being was diminished. And the thing is that happens to people. It might be that your relationship is in shambles and you have an argument with your spouse before you go to the office and all you can think about is that I only have a chunk of what I can offer and potential to you um, when I show up to work. Well-being has always been there in the background. It's part of being human. It's all the stuff around us. And it's like the, the visualization I like to use is it's like you're 
your bat. It's like a battery. I like to think of like a, a cell phone battery kind of icon that when all of this stuff is going on, you got caregiving, you're trying to teach your kids, you've got you're you're not feeling well, you're not in good health, you're psych, you're mentally, your mental health is off. All that de- decreases that battery. So when I sh- when I log in to work in the morning or I walk through the doors, the front doors, I might already be 60% diminished. And so that means I've got 40% of my potential to offer you today. And so you can have a world-class employee engagement program happening inside of the, the hours of work, and you're trying to optimize my 40%. And so well-being has always been in the background. It's always been a variable that's there, but we just haven't ever really embraced it. And I think that's what's happened is we've cracked open. The pandemic came and said, hey, it's time to start paying attention. And so I think what right what's happening now is that we're starting to actually realize and recognize that well-being is central to our ability to perform, our ability to be creative and innovate and all these other things. And so these programs shouldn't be tucked away in the corner. They shouldn't be thought of as, you know, uh, like right now, this is this is central to our ability to thrive and perform going forward. And it's actually, I think we were we were limited capacity before the pandemic. This is going to give us an opportunity if we get it right to emerge on the other side of this, actually with greater capacity with same same talent we had before. Well, I'm really glad you kind of really focused in on the the mental side of the well being. And we have for so long, well-being was, uh, which these are important things, but it was all physical. It was like do you, gym memberships and masseuses and ergonomic chairs. And, you know, and this is, those are great things and you can do that in your organization. But for me, well-being was always like mental health and psychological safety mm-hmm. and making sure we really understand where our people are. And, you know, I, I think the average leader would say, I, you know, I, I want to be there for my people. And I'm, yeah, but are you asking them how they're doing? Right. Are you? <laughs> do, you right. do you know if they're struggling or not? Because you can't just wait for them to come to you and say, oh, "Can I tell you all the crap going on in my life?" No, it's not going to happen, right? That's right. Until until maybe their performance is so bad that now you're going, "Okay, what's going on?" Um, we have to find ways to, to to do that. We have to maybe find places and spaces for them. Uh, to do that, I think our, our guest was on right before he was talking about some of that. How do we have structured conversations? How do we create environments and over meals or over, you know, different shared experiences that we can get people talking? And then maybe find out, right? Um, as well as I think leaders have a good, res- big responsibility. If they see something, if they see someone struggling, they got to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest lessons I learned, sometimes that's just canceling the meeting. <laughs> Like you have someone who's clearly struggling, <laughs> cancel the meeting, go deal with that person, help them out, reschedule the meeting. It'll, it'll be fine. Right. Yeah. Instead of just everyone grinning and getting through it. Right. And, and just bearing this terrible meeting. Cause obviously that person is hungover, upset, uh, whatever that thing is. Right. Yeah. It's, I, and that's, I mean, that's kind of why I, you know, over the last, I don't know, year or two, I really, I've been really sort of emphasizing or zeroing my work in on trying to, um, you know, equip managers in particular, frontline managers, but managers and leaders with different mindsets about their role and different skills and how to show up. Because you're right, that well-being is all about 
the relationship and conversations you're having with managers and managers get a bad rap and managers get beat up for all sorts of things. Like being a middle manager is a really hard job. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that's because we're not, they're just having, they, they get mixed messages about things. And I mean, part of the reason well-being has suffered for so long is because our traditional model of management has said, you leave that baggage at the door, right? You, like life stays outside. I only need you to show up and be a robot, do your job, no drama, be easy to manage and then go home. And I don't want to hear about anything else. I'm not your friend. I'm not your therapist. I'm not your counselor. I'm not anything. I am just here to make sure you do your job. Well, now all of a sudden we're saying, no, you're supposed to actually care about these people well-being and you're supposed to know about their lives. And we've never equipped them for how to have those conversations. And the reality is I listened to a little bit of the the first conversation you had. We're not very good at having those those conversations in general in our lives with our friends and the people we're closest to. So how are we supposed to know how to do it at work? And so I'm trying to, so, you know, one of the things like I've been talking a lot about and trying to teach is, is helping managers learn how to, um, demonstrate compassion like what does compassion look like what does that mean and and to your point compassion is where empathy and action connect Mm -hmm. i have to i have to see that you're hurting or suffering care want to take action and do something about it like that is that's what compassion in actual practice looks like and when you teach managers how to do that and give them permission like that's a game changer that's when well-being starts to shift fast yeah, and that's huge. Uh, I think it's great to care. It's great to have conversations, but without action, without you know, there being something that's being done uh, as the manager. Uh, and you're right, man, middle managers have it so hard. And besides being pushed from both ends, they also usually lack any sort of power or lack any sort right. of ability to to make a big change or to do something, right? And so we, we ask these people to do the to make, to make the world go around without actually any power to do so, right? They're just sort of almost holding on for dear life. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> hoping, they, hoping they might get promoted before they get fired, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard job. I, I didn't, I, for years, you know, I, I, and I don't know about you, but like the, I remember early early on in my HR career when, you, when I started kind of tapping into this whole world of, of engagement and when, you know, Gallup's out there, doing this, this whole thing. It's like, you know, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers and managers become the villain of the story. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like most managers, they want, it's not like they don't want to do a good job. They would love to be successful, but they're set up for failure often from the very beginning by, they have no skills. They were maybe promoted for the wrong reason. And I don't mean no skills. They don't have the the skills and training that they need to make that transition. And then, like you said, there's all sorts of things being pushed on them. It's a hard, hard job and and they deserve some support. They deserve some help. And, and part part of that is helping them break free and understand that you know, there's a lot of things. They have a lot more agency than they think when you give them permission to kind of manage people. Part of it is taking taking a bet on people, like be willing to. You know, I think I learned that I knew that in in sort of intuitively by accident early in my management careers. Like I was just going to bet on my relationship with people. And if caring too much for people got me fired, then so be it. 
but but your people then step up and they they protect you and you protect them and it, it like there's a magic but you have to right. be willing to take that risk and oftentimes hr is telling you like don't care too much because you might have to fire that person and it's hard to fire someone you care about and it's like yeah not but that's not an excuse not to do it so and actually, I, I have found, you know, when you really do care about the person, when it is time to separate because it's just the right moment, you actually can come from a much more intentional place and say, this just isn't a fit. Like, I care about you. You're not you're not doing well. We're not doing well. I'm letting you go because I do care about you to then right. allow you to go any farther and be miserable or or to have, you know, not make the money you think you're supposed to make or whatever it is. And so that's right. But, but that, that's hard to do. And it is it. It's sort of a next level conversation. I don't know. It's uh, it is. It's, it's the kind of thing. It's the kind of thing. It takes you a while. You have to do it a few times. <laughs> well, the re- I mean, the reason we we the reason we love to talk about bad management is because bad management is easy. Um, yeah. Good management, great management is hard, and it requires okay. courage and heart and all of these things and and vulnerability. Um, those conversations. I'm I'm with you. I've had the same thing. Like. If you care about people, then you're not going to let them be miserable and stay in a position where they're going to keep failing over and over and over again. It's like, I'm going to set you free. Like, this is like, I know it sucks, but, and you might not like me for a long, long time, but I, I honestly believe this is the best thing for you. Be mad at me, but go find a position where you can be happy, <laughs> you know? So it's hard. Well, two quick questions before we go. I want to find out, is there a book that maybe you're reading right now that you might suggest our our listeners check out. You've, you've mentioned a few already, uh, and certainly your book, uh, Unlocking High Performance, but is there any other books maybe that you might uh, suggest for us? You know, that this is off the top, you know, off the top of my head, there's nothing like super like recent, recent that I would recommend. Although I will, will say that just recently I'll, I'll offer this one because I think it's, um, I keep recommending it. And recently, I think right now in particular, it's as good as it's or powerful as it's ever been is a book called Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Mm-hmm. A lot of people probably already know that. I think that is one of the best management leadership books ever written. It's so full of so many useful things that have shaped at least how I manage and how I teach management. So that's usually the book I recommend. I've read that so many times. It's a great one. It's a great reminder for anyone who hasn't read it. And the most important question for you today is how can people find out more about you and your work and, and, and get a hold of you if they're interested in, in hiring you, learning more about you, whatever it may be? So um, two, two places I'll, I'll give you right now. One is um, jasonlordson.com is probably the easiest place to find me. If you can spell my name and put it into the Google, you'll find a lot. You know, in our business, Chris, we got to be easy to find. So I, I'm easy to find as long as you can spell my name. Right. Find me on LinkedIn or wherever. And then the other thing recently, um, right now I have kind of a cool thing. I have a, a free kind of management masterclass that's out there. If people want to go check out what I do, it's it's managementresetmasterclass.com. They can go and enter their email and, and get that for free. So if anyone needs a little bit of help, his last name is spelled L-A-U-R-I-T-S-E-N. There it is. Uh, so if you can uh, if you can figure out how to spell Jason on your own, you can put those two together and you'll find him in no, in no time. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show today and providing such incredible wisdom. We'd love to have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the cool stuff you're doing. And uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Got it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today, whether it was on LinkedIn Live, whether it was on the radio show live, or however you caught us, thank you for being here 
Hopefully you gain something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.